Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Come Creator Spirit, the inspiration of the spirit in the institution of the church. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June 12, 2011, Pentecost 2011. Jesus promised a kingdom, goes the joke, but what we got was the church. The Feast of Pentecost marks the birth of the church. After Christmas and Easter, Pentecost is the most important celebration of the Christian calendar. The term comes from the Greek word Pentecostos, meaning 50th, from which one of the most important feasts in the Jewish calendar derives its name. Fifty days after Passover, Jews celebrate the Feast of Harvest, or the Feast of Weeks. Many centuries later, after their exile to Babylon, Pentecost became one of the great pilgrimages feasts of Judaism, when diasporate Jews returned to Jerusalem to worship. Luke describes the first Christian Pentecost in Acts 2.5, when God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven clogged the streets of Jerusalem. And then on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God descended upon the first followers of Jesus. Luke compared it to the blowing of violent wind in tongues of fire. By the end of that first day, and despite the mockery of critics, 3,000 people joined the Jesus movement. But compared to what happened in the coming years, that was small beer only the beginning of the world's first fully globalized institution. Luke repeatedly inserts summaries of the numeric growth and geographic expansion of the newborn church. The movement burgeoned to over 5,000 men. And then in Acts 6-7, he describes how the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. A few pages later, he says that the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord, Acts 9.31. As Paul and Barnabas ministered in Antioch, we read in Acts 13.49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Luke's story ends with the Apostle Paul imprisoned in Rome, where tradition said he was martyred, but not before he had trekked 10,000 miles across Asia Minor preaching about Jesus and planting churches. In its first decades, the early church fulfilled what Jesus had promised, that the presence of the Spirit meant witnessing with power. We read in Acts 1.8, in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so today, about a third of the world identifies itself as Christian, and no religion can claim more adherence. But Pentecost not only birthed the church, it begot a bureaucracy. Across the centuries, human institutions became the wineskin for spirit-led inspirations, 
And therein lies both the wit and the wisdom in the joke about the difference between God's vibrant kingdom in moribund human churches. It's easy to criticize the church as a deeply flawed organization, but the institutionalization of the Jesus movement was both inevitable and necessary. Nothing happens without spirit-inspired people, but nothing lasts without institutions. How should they organize 5,000 new converts? What was its message? What constituted proper worship and why? Could Gentiles join what was initially a Jewish movement? And if they did, should they observe the Mosaic traditions? Who would lead and why? How broad or narrow were the boundaries? What were reasonable procedures and protocols for feeding widows, collecting money for famine relief, sending out missionaries like Paul and Barnabas, or adjudicating disputes? In short, where was the Spirit of God blowing? Where was his fire burning? And how could you be sure? These and many other questions required that the movement of the Spirit become a bureaucratic organization. In his study of early Pentecostal Christians in American culture, called Heaven Below, Harvard 2001, the historian Grant Wacker explores how such a wildly enthusiast, anti-intellectual, countercultural, and socially marginal movement could not only survive, but flourish. Wacker says that the early American Pentecostals did two things extremely well. First, they encouraged the primitive impulse of a deeply felt relationship with God. And second, they devised pragmatic ways to bottle the lightning without stilling the fire or cracking the vessel. From those first tongues of fire described by Luke until today, from small beginnings as a vibrant movement to ecclesiastical institutions that two billion Christians call home, that has been the perennial challenge. How do we facilitate the Spirit's fire without shattering the bottle or extinguishing the flame? By the early 2nd century, when the Church began to observe Pentecost as a Christian celebration, a controversy erupted about how to answer that very question. Around the year 150 AD, a prophet named Montanus forced the institution of the Church to grapple with the inspiration of the Spirit. As the prevalence and intensity of dreams, signs, wonders, and miracles gradually waned in the decades after the Apostles, as apocalyptic vision became less vivid and the Church's polity became more rigid, Christians wondered, was this God's will? Or maybe it was a consequence of the Church becoming more bureaucratic. Wasn't it an embarrassment that the powerful manifestations of the Spirit seemed less frequent? Montanus believed that the decline in the Spirit's manifestations resulted from the Church's moral laxity in matters like divorce and fasting. He wasn't satisfied with the mere theoretical possibility of the presence and power of the Spirit 
or with other suggestions about how the Spirit might manifest himself. For him, the proof was very much in the pudding. Montanus claimed to have received direct revelations from the Spirit, and at times his comments even implied that he was the incarnation of the Spirit. The sect named after him, Montanism, was thus characterized by fanatical zeal, rigorous asceticism, and an excessive preoccupation with supernatural manifestations of the spirit. Two women, Priscilla Maximilla, accompanied Montanus and similarly claimed direct communications with the spirit. <clears throat> the most famous Montanus was the great African theologian Tertullian, who lived in Carthage, or modern-day Tunisia. Tertullian once complained about, quote, the church of a lot of bishops, end quote. Writing in the early 3rd century, Tertullian gives us a snapshot of the movement. I quote, We have among us now a sister who has been granted gifts of revelations, which she experiences in church during the Sunday services through ecstatic vision in the spirit. And after the people have been dismissed at the end of the service, it is her custom to relate to us what she has seen. As you might imagine, Montanism made mainstream church authorities nervous, and they responded in two ways. First, the historian Eusebius employed derision. He scorned those who, quote, rave in a kind of ecstatic trance. He dismissed their bastard utterances as the demented, absurd, and irresponsible sayings of a presumptuous spirit. The Montanists, said Eusebius, babble in a jargon that is contrary to the custom of the church, which had been handed down by tradition from the earliest times. According to that tradition, the Spirit of God speaks clearly sufficiently and reliably enough through three means, the canon of scripture, the creeds of the councils, and the clergy of the church. Secondly, Hippolytus, a contemporary of Tertullian who was martyred in Rome in the year 235, resorted to denial. He taught that miraculous visions and direct communications from the Spirit ended with the revelation of John. He said that, in effect, the Spirit worked differently now than in the apostolic days. In the words of the Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan, in contrast to Montanus, just as Hippolytus pushed the time of the second coming into the future, so he pushed the time of prophecy into the past. For Hippolytus, the work of the Spirit was now a difference not only of degree, but also fundamentally of kind. Although the institutional church recognizes the Spirit's voice primarily in its historical creeds, its biblical canon, and its apostolic clergy, in the experiences of monks and friars, of mystics and seers, the Montanus heresy has carried on a sort of unofficial existence. The Spirit of God who hovered over all creation still blows when where and how he pleases. John chapter 3, verse 8. 
2,000 Pentecost celebrations later, we should heed Paul's advice in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-21. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. In one of the most widely used hymns in the church, Come Creator Spirit, attributed to the German Benedictine monk and priest Rabanus Maris, who lived from 776 to 856, Christians around the world have cried out, Come Creator Spirit. Any time is a good time to pray that prayer, but no time is more appropriate than Pentecost Sunday. Come, Creator Spirit. For books this week, I review Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States, 1492 to Present, New York, HarperCollins, 1980, 729 pages. Who gets to write history? and in so doing, shape the myths and narratives by which we live. Most history is written from what you might call from above. That is, about presidents, generals, their wars, peace treaties, and the like. The radical historian Howard Zinn, 1922-2010, turns that perspective upside down. He reads history not from above, but from below from the perspective of a coal miner, a black slave, or a Vietnamese rice farmer. History looks very different for a woman who could not vote, own property, pursue education, or advance in employment than it does for George Washington, the richest man in America in his day. Zinn grew up in the slums of Brooklyn, the son of two immigrant factory workers. After high school, he worked for three years in the shipyards. After serving in the Air Force, he completed his doctorate in history at Columbia University. From 1956 to 1963, he taught at Spelman College, the first historically black female institution of higher education. And then from 1964 until 1988, he was professor of political science at Boston University. Among his more than 30 books, A People's History of the United States is Zinn's best-known work, having sold more than a million copies. It typifies his radical analysis of the structures of power that form the basis of his teaching, writing, and activism in movements for justice and peace. Zinn says that he wrote A People's History to awaken a greater consciousness of class conflict racial injustice, sexual inequality, and national arrogance, especially as those are expressed in the marriage of predatory capitalism, permanent militarism, government power, and unjust laws. It's extremely important, he says, that citizens develop independent critical judgment and learn a different sort of history one that will make them skeptical of what they hear from authority, and that will foster, rather than suppress, a permanent adversarial culture. 
Throughout his book, Zinn highlights the resistors and revolutionaries, some famous but many unknown, who did exactly that. Despite government control and corporate power that urge conformity to their own narratives, Zinn recovers the many lost stories that represent what he calls the bubbling of change under under the surface of obedience. Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States from 1492 to present. For film this week, I review Sweetland from the year 2005. The plot is simple and the pace is slow, but this story about overcoming community prejudice against the outsider is nevertheless powerful. Told through a series of flashbacks when she buries her husband in 1968, The story takes place in the 1920s when Inga, a mail-order bride from Germany, travels to rural Minnesota to meet her husband-to-be, a Norwegian farmer named Olaf. The only problem is that Olaf had no clue that Inga was German. Her immigration papers are also incomplete, which provides a convenient excuse to ostracize her. She is, after all, from enemy Germany, land of the socialists and Nazism. And besides, the Lutheran pastor thinks she makes the coffee too strong. The banker would love to foreclose on their property. The neighbors gossip. When the community prohibits them from marrying, Olaf and Inga live together openly and fall in love amidst the stunning scenery and back-breaking labor of the Minnesota Plains. Sweetland, from the year 2005. And finally, for Pentecost Sunday, we've posted a poem by John Dryden, 1631 to 1700. The title in Latin is Veni Creator Spiritus, Come Creator Spirit. Creator Spirit, by whose aid the first foundations were first laid. Come, visit every pious mind. Come, pour thy joys on humankind. From sin and sorrow set us free, and make thy temples worthy thee. O source of uncreated light, the Father's promised paraclete, thrice holy fount, thrice holy fire, our hearts with heavenly love inspire. Come in thy sacred unction bring to sanctify us while we sing. Plenteous of grace descend from high, rich in thy sevenfold energy. Thou strength of his almighty hand, whose power does heaven and earth command. Proceeding spirit our defense, who dost the gift of tongues dispense, and crowns thy gift with eloquence. Refine and purge our earthly parts, but oh, and flame and fire our hearts. Our frailties help, our vice control, submit the senses to the soul. And when rebellious they are grown, then lay thy hand and hold them down. 
Chase from our minds the eternal foe. In peace the fruit of love bestow. And lest our feet should step astray, protect and guide us in the way. Make us eternal truths receive. In practice all that we believe. Give us thyself that we may see the Father and the Son by thee. Immortal honor, endless fame, attend the Almighty Father's name. The Savior Son be glorified, who for lost man redemption died. In equal adoration be, eternal paraclete, to thee. Veni Creator Spiritus by John Dryden, the English poet, literary critic, translator, and playwright. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Pentecost Sunday, June the 12th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.